You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Okay, Acts 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly. There were three there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed that they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the values of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and uh, Achaia. After I'd been there, uh, after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He then sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named uh, Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, 
but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from uh, sorry, companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed in into uh, sorry, and all of them rushed into uh, theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make, uh, to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, although they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then, uh, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-consoles. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, It'd be great if you don't already have Acts 19 open, if you could uh, open it up. Uh, There's an outline of my sermon on the usual spot on the uh, what's the online welcome card, as it's called, via the Sundays tab on the website. If that's useful for you, please look that up. And the third thing is just a kind of advanced heads up. It seems that the uh, bulb in this projector has gone, which is why we can't get the screen down. So for the song after the sermon, it's a bit random, but uh, if at some stage you are not completely fixated on every word I say, and you happen to look up uh, the song Risen by Emu Music, then you'll be ready to sing uh, after I finish preaching. So uh, that's probably the best way that we could have song words available uh, to sing after I preach. Uh, Risen by Emu Music. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you that uh, you speaking to us through your word is not dependent on uh, modern technology like projectors and light bulbs and screens. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would speak to us, in particular, uh, opening our eyes uh, to see afresh the sovereign power of Jesus, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
well, I do wonder if you ever long for someone who can make a real difference in this world in which we live. I think deep down, whether you're a Christian or not, I think deep down all of us long uh, for someone who can do that because we sense that this world is not really as it should be. Maybe you've never thought about that, but I certainly sense that this world isn't as it should be. I feel it in my own life. I feel it in my body. Every time I get another bout of gut issues, I won't give you too much information, you know. Uh, Every time I get uh, another tension headache, every time I lose a little bit more vision, it tells me, Aaron, this world isn't quite right. It's not as it should be. Maybe you have similar things that you experience in your body. I feel it in my emotions too. Uh, The waves of depression, the anxiety, the discouragement, sometimes the hopelessness, the feeling, can I really be bothered keeping on going with this? I feel it in my relationships, uh, which often are characterised by a whole lot more miscommunication and tension and conflict than I'd really like. I feel it as I uh, tune into the news about our world, I look at the world and I see natural disasters and people trafficking and people being enslaved and brutal wars and oppressive dictators. It's not that hard to develop a sense that this world that we live in is not as it should be. And so, uh, and it's also, I think, uh, reasonable to concede that as commendable as human efforts are to change and transform the world, uh, they're fairly limited. Yes, we're making progress on a whole bunch of different fronts, uh, but it's like we're just trying to put a whole like, kind of fingers in the damn wall uh, of the kind of massive tide of suffering and evil and oppression and injustice that just keeps pouring out into our world. Our ability to bring change and transformation to our world is just so limited. So we're left longing for someone who can make a real difference who can bring about deep and lasting change, not just fleeting change. A change that's not just for a a particular uh, privileged segment of society or privileged segment of our world, uh, but it's comprehensive for the entire world. That's the change that we long for, the transformation that we long for. And in today's passage from Acts chapter 19, we see that the only person who has the power to bring about that sort of transformation that I want to suggest all of us long for, is Jesus. That's what we see in Acts 19. In Paul's ministry in Ephesus, uh, we see, we get a glimpse of the fact that the sovereign power of Jesus will one day transform the entire world. That's my kind of summary for the passage. The sovereign power of Jesus will one day transform the entire world. So if you've got your Bible open, uh, take a look first at verses 1 to 7. Uh, these verses are all about uh, the, the greater power of Jesus and his baptism. Uh, so t- take a look at verse 1 for a start. Uh, Luke tells us uh, that while Apollos was in Corinth, uh, Paul took the road through the interior uh, and arrived at Ephesus. So if you, uh, you might remember last week in Acts chapter 18, Paul dropped by Ephesus for a quick visit on his way back uh, to visit the church in Antioch, and he said, I'll come back if it's the Lord's will. Uh, so I don't know, but clearly the, the spirits prompted him or, or something. He now knows that it is God's will. He's returned to Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was a very large city, uh, a very wealthy city, like lots of the cities that Paul's visiting. 
uh, and as we'll see later in the chapter, uh, it was most well known because it was home to the magnificent temple uh, to the goddess Artemis. And in that temple uh, was based a, a trade union of silversmiths. Headed, out, headed up by Demetrius, that we'll hear about later on, they made little silver shrines of the goddess Artemis uh, for people to worship. So that's Ephesus. Uh, then uh, in verse 1, uh, Paul says, so Paul arrives in Ephesus, uh, and Luke says he finds some disciples there. Now it's a bit hard to know exactly in what sense uh, Luke considers these people to be disciples, it's pretty clear from what follows that, well, they're not Christian disciples yet. Why? Well, they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. That's the key mark of being a Christian, of belonging to God's people. It's the Spirit that tells us that we are a child of God and God is our Heavenly Father. We're a part of his family. So maybe these disciples, it seems that they're just disciples of John the Baptist We'll hear a bit more about John in a second, uh, who are also eager to become disciples of Jesus. So Paul senses maybe they're not baptised in the Holy Spirit. I don't know exactly how he senses that, but he sees no evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in their life. So in verse 3, uh, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And notice that Paul is pretty generous when he speaks to them. He already suspects that, well, maybe they don't really get Jesus they don't really understand the gospel. Like you can tell he suspects that, but he's generous. He errs on the side of saying, hey, you, maybe you're believers, right? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Uh, but Paul's suspicions are proved right. Notice how the people answer. And they say, no, we haven't even heard uh, that there is a Holy Spirit. Oh, so these people, they're exploring Christianity, perhaps like some of you here today, they're checking Jesus out, they're checking church out, uh, they're interested in becoming disciples of Jesus, but they're not Christians yet. And not only have they not received the Holy Spirit into their lives, being baptised in the Spirit, uh, but they haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Uh, so they're kind of operating with a completely different understanding of who God is doesn't even include the Holy Spirit. So Paul says to them, then what baptism did you receive in verse 3? And they say, John's baptism. So these guys, it seems, and in fact, Ephesus was a, a little bit of a hub for John the Baptist. Many people think that John the Baptist, kind of after his ministry, kind of retired to Ephesus. Uh, and so these are disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, and so from verse 4, uh, Paul explains the kind of relationship between John the Baptist and his ministry and Jesus and his ministry. Notice verse 4, uh, Paul says John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Right? When John the Baptist called people to get baptised uh, in water, you know, down in the river, uh, he was uh, saying that this baptism is a picture of your repentance, uh, of your willingness to turn away from your old life of sin and turn towards a new life. Right? Turn over a new leaf, if you like. Uh, but that new life was only ever going to come through Jesus. Well, notice what Paul says next in verse 4. Uh, he says, John told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. You see, these people had thought John the Baptist's ministry was kind of an end in itself. But actually, John the Baptist's ministry was supposed to be a signpost pointing to Jesus. 
saying, believe in the one coming after me, the greater one, believe in Jesus. And in the same way, John the Baptist's baptism in water was supposed to be a signpost pointing people to the greater baptism of Jesus that was to come, being baptised in the Holy Spirit, which is what Paul wants to talk to these disciples of John the Baptist about. It's the greater baptism because it doesn't just give you a bit of a bath on the outside. We all know that if you have a wash in the bath, it doesn't change your heart doesn't bring deep change to your heart. The only baptism, the only washing in water that will change your heart is the power of God's spirit that purifies you and cleanses you on the inside. So John's baptism in water was supposed to point people to the greater baptism of Jesus. So notice verse 5. I think these disciples of John the Baptist must have done what John the Baptist would have wanted them to do. They believed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because Luke says they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right? They'd previously been baptised, as it were, in John's name. They were his disciples. Uh, but now being baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus, that's a sign that they belong to him, to Jesus' people. They're his disciples. And having repented of their sin and believed in the gospel and been baptised in water, in verse 6, uh, we're told that they're baptised in the Spirit. It's a bit. Look at. Take a look at verse six. When Paul placed his hands on them, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon them, uh, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So this, in a sense, is the cluster of four different things that happen when someone becomes a Christian. Uh, they repent. That is, they turn away from their old life. Uh, they believe. They put their faith in Jesus and in Him alone. Uh, they're baptized in water. That's an outward physical sign that they belong to Jesus and his people. And they're baptised in the spirit, an inward spiritual sign that they belong to Jesus and his people. And now about this baptism in the spirit. I know some of you might have questions. I probably won't answer all of them in the next couple of minutes. But let me just say a couple of things about the baptism of the spirit. The first is that sometimes this experience of being baptised in the spirit is really obvious and dramatic. That was the experience of these disciples here, wasn't it? Uh, they spoke in tongues. They prophesied. Right? That's a pretty spectacular thing. Other times when people are baptised in the Spirit, they feel like uh, they have this unbelievable uh, confidence in God's love for them. All of a sudden, their relationship with God becomes more real than they've ever felt it is before. Right? Sometimes the baptism in the Spirit is really a kind of one-moment thing, a dramatic thing. A spectacular thing. Other times the baptism in the Spirit, though, is much more gradual and much more subtle. And this is particularly the case, I think, for our children, perhaps, who've grown up in the context of a Christian community. Who, If you, if you said to them, when did you become a Christian, they might, or they might feel, well, I've just kind of always believed in Jesus. And the Spirit has been at work in their heart for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, there are key moments where it becomes a bit more real or the light bulbs go on, but it's not as dramatic and spectacular as it might be. It might have been for these disciples. But one thing that unites all Christians is that they are baptised in the Holy Spirit. They have this experience of knowing deeply and profoundly that Jesus is theirs and they are Jesus's. They belong to Jesus and his people. 
This is the greater power of Jesus and his baptism, the power that transforms the world one life at a time as people believe in Jesus and are transformed by the power of his spirit. Again, if you've got more questions about that, I should also say that the baptism in the spirit uh, uh, is not something that is received by a particular act. You know, here Paul lays his hands on people uh, and they receive the spirit. And there are still some Christians today who think, well, that's necessary. You can only receive the spirit if some kind of leader lays their hands on you or another Christian. But that's not true. Right? The, the, the Spirit of God uh, belongs to Jesus, and Jesus is quite capable of baptizing his people by himself. Right? He doesn't need me to put my hand on you. He's got it covered. We saw that in Acts chapter 2. He baptized all the people in Jerusalem, and no one laid a hand on anyone. Right? So it, it, sometimes the, the baptism of the Spirit comes by the laying on of hands. If you want to talk about why it might have happened like that in this context, happy to chat about it later. Anyway, in verses 8 to 10, we see the power of Paul's words in Ephesus. Take a look. In uh, uh, Paul uh, enters the synagogue, uh, we see in verse 8, uh, and he spoke uh, boldly there for three months about the kingdom of God. Uh, three months is a pretty long time for Paul to spend in the synagogue. Uh, don't know why he spends longer in the synagogue in Ephesus, uh, and he, but what he's speaking about, uh, he, we don't hear this language very often in the book of Acts, the kingdom of God. Uh, he's trying to persuade people that with the coming of Jesus, God's king, the Messiah, we've also seen the coming of God's kingdom. And that's significant because the coming of God's kingdom means God's kingly reign, his rule, uh, that will one day bring all the blessings of heaven down to earth. It will one day transform the entire world. And Paul's saying with Jesus coming... That's what started, the process of transforming the world. But as usual, even though Paul spends longer there, you'll see in verse 9 that the Jews aren't very receptive. Uh, They refuse to believe. And so Paul uh, goes next door to uh, the hall of Tyrannosaurus Rex. I was joking about that with um, uh, Charlie during the week, not Tyrannosaurus Rex, just the hall of uh, Tyrannus. And uh, we don't know much about Tyrannus. I guess he owned this lecture hall or founded it and rented it out for public discussions and forums and so on. And so it formed a kind of perfect base for Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Notice he was there for a really long time. How long was he there? Two and a half years or two years. He kept preaching the word of the Lord uh, from this lecture hall. What was the result? Verse 10. All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, I don't know, but it's how my mind works. When I read that, I I kind of think, well, maybe that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, there's a lot of Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia. Surely not all of them heard the word of the Lord. I don't think Paul, uh, Luke, who's writing this, uh, I don't think he's using the word all literally. Uh, It's a little bit like if I said, uh, all the people of Melbourne love football, or everyone has an iPhone these days. Some of you cringe, right? Because you're kind of like, well, I don't like football, and and, uh, I prefer Androids, right? And so uh, when we use these kind of all-encompassing words, we know that we're not speaking literally. What are we saying? We're saying that things like football and iPhones have had a kind of all kind of comprehensive influence on society. There's no part of society that hasn't been touched by football in Melbourne, that is, or iPhones, or whatever. You get the idea. 
And so Luke's saying that Paul's ministry, preaching the gospel in Ephesus, had that kind of influence on the whole province of Asia. It transformed it. It touched every single part of it. This is the powerful words of Paul in Ephesus. But, you know, his words are only this powerful because it's Jesus who's speaking through him. If you've thought about that, sometimes people think, well, Jesus died and he ascended to heaven and now he's kind of kicking back and what's he up to? But remember, uh, Luke started the book of Acts by saying that in his first book, that's Luke's gospel, he wrote about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. So what's he doing in the book of Acts? He's writing about everything that Jesus continues to teach, continues to do through his people, like Paul, empowered by the Spirit. So as Jesus speaks powerfully through Paul as one of his apostles in Ephesus, the whole city is transformed. The whole province is transformed. This is the power of Paul's words in Ephesus. See, in verses 11 to 20, we see the powerful, uh, the power of his wonders. Take a look in verse uh, 11, 11 and 12. Uh, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Uh, so that even handkerchiefs and uh, aprons uh, that had touched him uh, were taken to the sick uh, and their illnesses were cured uh, and the evil spirits left them. I know if you're new to the church, all this talk about evil spirits and demon possession and things might seem a bit wacky. Uh, happy to talk about that. I can't kind of don't have time to unpack all of that in my talk, but please come and speak to me about it. But Paul's miracles in Ephesus were incredible, extraordinary. I'd love it if people could be healed through my snotty hanky. I don't know if it was snotty. I don't know if he had a cold. Uh, But, uh, you know, like it's a pretty incredible miracle. Uh, But even in Ephesus, the, the, the miracles, the point of the miracles wasn't just so that people would go, oh, man, Paul's incredible. Right? The point was to prove, to confirm who Paul was. He was a true apostle of Jesus. Which is why in the verses that follow, verses 13 to 16, uh, the Jewish people in Ephesus can't just imitate Paul. Notice uh, notice verse 13, some Jewish uh, people who were kind of in the habit of going around driving out evil spirits uh, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus uh, over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, uh, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So you see, these Jewish leaders are treating the name of Jesus a bit like a magic code word. You know, all you have to do is speak it over someone and the power of Jesus will be released. And that's how, that's how they're treating Jesus. But that doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? At least two reasons. The first is that Jesus is not a kind of impersonal force that you can tap into and manipulate or use for your own purposes. Jesus is a powerful person, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He's not just going to be used by anyone. You can't just manipulate him. That's the first reason. The second reason uh, is that these Jewish leaders aren't authorised representatives of Jesus. He hasn't sent them out like he did Paul. They're not speaking and acting in the power of Jesus. So in verse 14, we read that things go really pear-shaped. Yeah, sorry, I skipped uh, from my spot, verse 14. 
Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish uh, chief priest, uh, were doing this, going around, driving out demons. Uh, And one day, uh, the evil spirit answered them back, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, uh, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit uh, jumped on them and overpowered them all. Uh, he, gave them, uh, he gave them such a beating uh, that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Uh, Paul's ministry in Ephesus is incredibly powerful. He's speaking and acting in the power of Jesus. Uh, but what's Paul's motivation? He wants to see Jesus glorified. He wants to see Jesus' name honoured. Wants to see him lifted up. Uh, these Jewish leaders thought they could use Jesus to have their name lifted up. They could just kind of use Jesus as leverage to get their name up in lights. And Jesus refuses to share his glory with people like that. If you think you can just use Jesus for your own purposes, he won't tolerate it. And these Jewish, the sons of the priest, you learn that the hard way. This was obviously a pretty horrendous incident. You know, seven sons of a local chief priest being beaten up this badly. So notice verse 17, Luke says, When this became known to all the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high regard. You see, the Jewish leaders who were going around, uh, they thought their name would be held in high regard. If only we could use the power of Jesus, then people will think highly of us. But the result of them being beaten up by the demon-possessed man was that Jesus' name was held in high regard in Ephesus. He was honoured as he deserves. And wherever Jesus' name is honoured as he deserves, it brings radical change to a city. Radical change to a person's life, radical change to a community, to a city, to a country. That's what we get a taste of here in Ephesus. Notice verse 18, the transformation's beginning. Many of those who uh, believed now came openly and confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery uh, brought their scrolls, that's their kind of magic scrolls, I take it, uh, together and they burned them publicly. Uh, when they uh, calculated the value of the, uh, of the scrolls, uh, the total came to 50,000 drachma, uh, which I take it means there were a lot of scrolls. Uh, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. You see, the powerful words and wonders of Jesus are transforming Ephesus. Masses of people who'd previously been messing around in the occult with evil and oppressive spiritual powers, sorcery, witchcraft, and so on, they turn away from that to the good and liberating power of Jesus, the power that is sovereign over every other power. So later on in the New Testament, when Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, he reminds the Ephesians that the Jesus who they've come to believe in Uh, died and rose again and ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God. And he says to them, he is far above all rule and authority, every power and dominion and every name that you might invoke. You see, that was them. 
They used to invoke all sorts of names to try and tap into some sort of spiritual power. And Paul says you've been set free from all of that by the sovereign power of Jesus, which is above every power. Every power, not only in the present age, Paul says, but also in the age to come. The transformation of Ephesus by the sovereign power of Jesus gives us just a taste of what's to come, a taste of the future, of when the sovereign power of Jesus will transform the entire world. I'm going to skip over verses 21 and 22 a bit. Uh, They're a little bit of a break. I think the point of verses 21 and 22 is that the power of Jesus will transform the world through the power of the gospel. Paul's convinced of that. So he wants to take always to take the gospel to new territory, in particular to the ends of the earth in his day, uh, which was Rome. But in verses 23 to 41, the transformation of Ephesus uh, really picks up speed. Uh, before Paul's going to, he plans to leave Ephesus, but before he leaves, this riot is stirred up in the city. Uh, we see in verses 24 to 27 that the riot uh, is caused by that silversmith trade union that's based in the temple, headed up by Demetrius. Uh, they're not happy. In verses 24 to 27, uh, Demetrius kind of has a, a trade union meeting, rallies the workers together, uh, and you can see, I think, that he gives lip service to the idea of wanting to protect the divine majesty of Artemis. But what's his real concern? Protecting incomes, protecting his bank account, protecting, protecting the economy of Ephesus. And, and Demetrius knows that the only thing that's going to protect the jobs, his job, the jobs of his workers, their, their income, the only thing that's going to get rid of it, it's going to protect it, is to get rid of Paul. Because what's Paul doing? He's going around persuading people Uh, to worship the true and living God who made everyone and everything with his hands rather than worshipping the little silver shrines that they make with their hands. He's messing up everything. He's endangering the lucrative income that comes through this business. So Demetrius tries to rally the troops. He gives them this spiel. They're afraid of losing their jobs and losing their income. I'm not really judging them for that. But that's what they're afraid of. Uh, Jesus and the power of the gospel is transforming the entire economy of Ephesus. Uh, So in verse 28, uh, we see that the crowds are absolutely furious. Uh, They they stir up the whole city to a fever pitch. Uh, They grab hold of two of Paul's travelling companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they rush into the city theatre, which is where the uh, kind of city officials would meet, a kind of rallying point for the city. And there they shout out, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. Notice verse 30 though, Paul is eager to speak to the riotous mob, he's not afraid, he wants a gospel opportunity, the other Christians in Ephesus hold him back, in fact notice verse 31, Even some of the city officials, Paul's been in Ephesus for three years. I I reckon Paul was a pretty good networker, so he knew quite a lot of people in Ephesus by this stage. Even some of the city officials want Paul to stay safe. 
As often happens, notice verse 32. I think some people laughed when this was read out. But when a, when a kind of mob is whipped up into a frenzy like this, uh, sooner or later, the emotional hype means they're not thinking that clearly. Verse 32, they're confused, they're rudderless, they're, conf- uh, they're kind of divided. Some of them don't even know why they're there. Oh, well, we just got caught up in this thing. What are we here for? And so the Jews, verse 33, see an opportunity. Right? The Jews don't worship the goddess Artemis. They only worship the one true God of Israel. But they also want to get rid of Paul because he's messing up their synagogue. So they, in verse 33, push forward Alexander, presumably a decent public speaker, to try and get Jews and Greeks together to form an alliance to get rid of Paul. But the Greek workers from the trade union, uh, they don't want a bar of that. They won't align themselves with someone who refuses to worship Artemis. Finally, after two hours of them incessantly shouting out, notice verse 35, the city clerk gets up. The city clerk's kind of the head official of the city. What does he say? He says, fellow Ephesians. Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus uh, is the guardian of the temple of the great uh, of the great Artemis uh, and of her image, which fell from heaven. Uh, he's kind of saying, "Let me get this straight. You guys are, are causing this massive riot over something that all the world already knows. Everyone already knows that Australia's got kangaroos. Like, don't call a ruckus, cause a ruckus about it. Like, you know, he's saying everyone knows that Ephesus is the home to Artemis." So why bother causing such a disturbance? Right? Nothing's ever going to change that. So instead, you should just calm down. Notice verse 36. Uh, you ought to calm down uh, and not do anything rash. It's a pretty savvy, savvy political manoeuvre, actually. Uh, the city clerk is kind of saying he's trying to turn the mob's uh, attention away from the self-interest of protecting their money uh, and towards the self-interest of protecting their freedom, protecting their lives. Because you see, he's saying, if it's found out that you guys have caused a riot over something that everyone already knows for basically no reason at all, then the Roman authorities are going to come down and charge you with rioting, and who knows what the punishment's going to be for that. You could be thrown in prison, you could even be executed. And so he says to them, verses 37 and 38, he says, if someone's got an issue with Paul and his team... Raise it through the appropriate legal channels. If you don't want to do that, then just settle down, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. So the crowd's dispersed. Got some singing along. Wonderful. See, deep down, all of us long for someone who can make a real difference in the world that we live in. I think we do, for someone who can bring deep and lasting and comprehensive change. And in Acts chapter 19, I'm just suggesting today that the only person who has the power to bring about that change that we long for is Jesus. This week, you might get the impression that it's Daniel Andrews. I don't think it is. He might do some good work, but he can't bring about the change that we long for. It's not Matthew Guy either. It's not me. It's not any of us. The only person who has the power 
<clears throat> to bring about the comprehensive, deep and lasting change that we long for is Jesus. The sovereign power of Jesus will one day transform the whole world. And there's a whole bunch of implications of that, but one implication is that we as the church are the future. We as the church are the future because we already have an experience of the transforming power of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. We as the church are the future. There were some people in Australia, perhaps increasing numbers of people, who would say we as the church are the past. We're outdated, uh, we're quaint, we're overly traditional, we're dangerous, we're damaging, and in the future, it will be clear that we've been on the wrong side of history. That's the basic narrative. We as the church are the past. In that the Bible says we as the church are the future. We as the church are those who profess that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over all. We're filled with his spirit. And so in that sense, we give people a taste of the future, a taste of the time when everyone and everything will be gathered under the sovereign power of Jesus as Lord. So as much as people might marginalise the church or say that we're outdated or whatever it is, say that we're from the, only in the past, we as the church are called to give people a taste of the future. We give people that taste as we live together in a way that bears the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit as we relate to one another with love and joy and gentleness and humility and self-control, all those different characteristics that are listed in Galatians chapter 5, that gives people a taste of the future. We show, uh, give people a taste of the future as we share the good news about Jesus and urge people to surrender their lives to him as their Lord. You see, sometimes uh, when Gabby's cooking something in the kitchen, she's uh, cooking something on the stove, uh, it's a pasta sauce or a curry or a soup or something, and uh, I'll sneak in and get a taste of it. You know, get the spoon and get a little taste. It's not the whole thing, but it gets the taste buds going. You've had this before, you arrive at a wedding, uh, you've got to wait for ages for the main course because the bridal party hasn't turned up yet, and, but someone comes around with an appetiser. You're really hungry, you get the appetiser. It doesn't really satisfy you fully, but it gives you a taste of what's to come. That's what the church should be like. That's what I want our church to be like. As we experience the transforming power of Jesus in our own lives, in our life as our community, when people come along, they get a taste of the future, of how wonderful it will be when all of the world is transformed by the sovereign power of Jesus. Uh, let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this, your word. Uh, we thank you that uh, Jesus, your son, uh, is indeed uh, risen and exalted uh, over every power. He is sovereign over all. Uh, and that one day he will bring change and transformation to the entire world. Uh, we pray, Father, for us as a church that we uh, might indeed give people a taste of that glorious, transformed future uh, in the way that we relate to one another, in a way that puts on display the fruit of your spirit, in the way, empowered by the spirit, we share the good news about Jesus and urge people to believe in him. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.